0: Welcome to the Natural History Cupboard. Come on in. And welcome back to the Natural History Cupboard podcast, the place where the weird and wonderful parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always is my co-host, Aaron.
1: Aaron, say hi. Yeah, is your name really Gareth? And is my name really Aaron? It's is my whole life. Is the entire universe really just one big lie?
0: Well, you know what they say: if everything is a simulation and the simulation is that convincing that you can't tell between real life and a simulation, does it really matter?
1: <laughs>
0: Bit deep for ten seconds into the podcast, but uh, how are you doing? Well, existential. I'm I'm having uh, a thought that you're you're yeah. going very existential.
1: Well, I was today years old when I found out that the vinegar in inverted commas—I restrained an expletive there—the vinegar in inverted commas that is used in fish and chip shops is not vinegar, and it blew my mind. And now my whole life is a lie. Uh, What is it? Everything I thought I knew—it's something called non-brewed condiment. Non-brewed condiment. Yeah, it's not. It's not vinegar. Vinegar is made by fermenting different alcohols so you know like uh or malt vinegar and malt vinegar is from malt white wine barley yeah uh, from ale yeah white white wine um now with with the vinegar he says through gritted teeth that you <laughs> did. Get you just in... go to a very bad fish and chip shop no no this is this is actually nationwide in uk and ireland uh but oh, it's not, not another use...
0: brexit benefit is it we're no longer they... we're not doing, yeah, we're no vinegar longer doing vinegar anymore we've we don't actually, want that
1: coming in. It's not Brexit based. This is actually this actually goes back to nineteen forty-nine. This is the rabbit hole I went down when I found out that my fish and chips wasn't covered in vinegar. <laughs> it's actually acetic acid that's been watered down uh, and then added. Acetic a, acid a, is vinegar. Yeah, but it's it's not the it's not the same. Um there's uh there's uh caramel in it to uh, some sort of caramelized something or other to to give it the colour. And there's there's other additional flavorings. Uh, it's not made, like it's not fermented uh as as vinegar should be. Um, and my whole world has fallen. Uh like the, the pillars, <laughs> the pillars of my life have just fallen down around me because I love vinegar on my chips and my and my fish. And now well, I'm the,
0: like the question what? is, did you still have it, this non-vinegar vinegar on your on your chips?
1: I didn't even have fish and chips today. This news was brought to me by one of my colleagues. I got no, I had no idea. Oh, just, it wasn't a case of you were me,
0: standing there just looking absent-mindedly at the bottle.
1: No, no, just had a quiet day, put my head down, getting on with my job. Sat down, had my lunch. When my colleague came and sat down next to me, and he just he said, "I watched a video that uh, that said that uh, vinegar in fish and chip shops isn't real." I said, no, it sounds a bit conspiracy theorist. So I I googled it, and no, it's true, and it's been true since 1949. Like, what is this world?
0: <laughs> Maybe it's it's one of the what they call the Mandela effect—things that you thought were there, but then they're not, and you you believe you're in a different universe. Do you but, know yeah. that if they
1: label it, if they label it as vinegar, they can be they can be done for it, and. It, they can even be done for it they can even be fined or, or or whatever but having this vinegar in the in the stereotypical kind of vinegar carrying fluid vessel uh thingy if you see it in that y- you need to get proof that it's actually vinegar because because i feel that you're about to
0: go on some sort of fish and chip shop crusade here
1: but <laughs> i feel like i should really although <laughs> travelling the
0: nation's fish and chip shops yeah, calling them out it, on their vinegar
1: saving fish and chip shop fans one one vinegar bottle at a time
0: <laughs> well there you go it might be your your greater calling
1: you never know <laughs> people in Europe aren't going to get this because uh well particularly the mediterranean they don't they don't use vinegar the same way we do they only they only have like balsamic vinegar on their on their salads and stuff they they don't put vinegar on on chips which no like, vinegar is, blows vinegar my mind is there well. to
0: drown chips in you know you must punish the chips by drowning them in <laughs> it
1: i always say if you haven't fish and chips you don't have enough vinegar until you inhale and it makes you cough that's yeah, exactly. when you know you've got enough vinegar <laughs>
0: well there you go anyway we've managed to go on for a good couple of minutes there about fish and chip shop vinegar or the lack thereof (laughs) what else have you been up to other than going on a crusade of fish and chip shop vinegar
1: well i've been out and about trying to trying to find things you might have seen if if you followed the if you follow us on instagram you would have seen that i've been out looking for a certain species and i'm going to reveal what that species is now um yeah, so you have to listen to the uh, podcast to find out the answer to the Instagram <laughs> post. Well, that's a quite clever way of getting some listeners. Yeah, in. yeah, suck them um, in. Yeah, that's it. Bring them in. So I was uh, I was at a river after no- after after sunset looking for beavers. So if you guessed beavers, you were correct. The uh, the little mark question you can see is the tree. Did you? No, I didn't see any. See
0: any. No, no, you no, can't even follow that up by showing images of beavers. <laughs> no, I can't. It's good to know I'm not the only one who can't
1: spot wildlife at this point. <laughs> uh, do, do you know what? I, a funny story like, I, 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 was, I was sat there looking for beavers, and I thought there's been a lot of rainfall recently, um, always is, and um, the river was moving super fast. It there's obviously a lot of soil erosion further upriver because the water was very muddy um very brown so i just thought like, there is no, <clears throat> there is no chance that i am gonna see a uh a, a kingfisher today so i put the cam, turn the camera off put it down and as Aha. soon as that camera touched the grass a kingfisher flew over my shoulder yep um but no i didn't see i saw i saw chewed up beaver trees mm-hmm. i saw um i saw the trackways where they're getting out in and out of the water um and i even uh heard uh, i'm almost i'd say i'm 98% sure that i heard a beaver because uh, i heard a tree coming down it splashing and then a lot of splashing around that uh in that direction but by the time i got there i couldn't see they couldn't see anything um so yeah a little bit disappointing on that front but are we to get back is? out there and do it again yeah
0: mm well I've not really been up to very much this week. It's been uh, back to school, back to getting um, lessons started and everything. So I have been teaching uh, a lot of the students about uh, British wildlife as well as what a fish is because mm-hmm. I thought I'd start off um, one of the lessons on aquatic species by saying there is no such thing as a fish. And I'm not just touting that other podcast that has that name, but um mm-hmm. That apparently stumped them for a good while, even though I described exactly what parameters make a fish. And for anyone who is unaware of that particular fact, yes, there is no such thing taxonomically as a fish. The What we consider fish are just a group of related animals, but very distantly related, that all look superficially the same because they've evolved to live in an aquatic environment. Um, sharks are about as closely related to a salmon as we are to say uh, a bullfinch so yeah <laughs> it's uh, it is it is a group that we've basically artificially constructed the way that i put it to them was imagine having a bunch of animals and imagine having some boxes you label those boxes fish mammal bird and you just put everything that looks vaguely like a fish in that box everything that looks vaguely like a mammal in the mammal box and everything that looks vaguely like a bird in the bird box the only difference is the fish box is going to contain an awful lot more of things that aren't related to each other, but are actually very similar physically because they live in an environment that needs them to be. So,
1: so it's it's is conversion evolution. Is it? It's yeah. the same same pressure environmental pressures forcing a particular body shape and lifestyle upon things. Definitely. But uh, <laughs> they were all a bit stumped by it, or they
0: all just seemed to be hanging on to the the um the thought that there's no such thing as a fish like i just said that they don't exist so yeah Mm. anyway shall we move from this philosophical debate as to whether we exist fish exist or whether indeed vinegar exists um and move into our news at this point i don't even know if i exist does the news exist let's find out shall we
1: exist (laughs)
0: Right, well we're into this week's news. Uh Aaron,
1: take us out. Thank you, Arif. Every week we are inundated with news coming out of the weird and wonderful world of natural sciences. And though we are but a small team, we want you, our fellow cupboard dwellers, to be kept up to date on the good, the bad, and the extraordinary. So let's open up our natural history covered newsreel where we've compiled some of the more interesting headlines and where to find them. And we'll dive on in. Cool. Well, most of mine have come from
0: the BBC this week because I found that they seem to have an overabundance Mm. of interesting little uh, stories to go with. There was quite a
1: bit. (laughs) Sorry? There was quite a bit from them, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's been a bit of an odd week. There's been an overabundance of news, I would say. Um, Mm. The first one is an Australian man fined for taking his pet snake surfing. (laughs) That is as ridiculous as it sounds. Uh, but a Gold Coast man who filmed himself uh, taking his pet snake for a surf has been fined by Australian wildlife authorities. Uh, Higor Fuser and his uh, carpet python Shiver uh, became local celebrities earlier this month after their video of them catching waves went viral. I mean, I don't have to tell you how ridiculous that is. Obviously, a snake like this is not meant to be taken surfing. They may in uh, in some cases end up going towards the beach, but Thankfully um, he was very quickly uh, chastised over this and Queensland department of environment and science says it's begun investigations into the surfing duo uh, after it appeared in local media. And this week issued him with a fine of 2,322 Australian dollars. That works out roughly as 1,207 pounds and Americans out there, $1,495. So not a, Bad, fine. And hopefully we'll teach him a lesson about doing stupid things with animals.
1: Hmm. That was a, that was a wacky one. Um, From fizz.org, we have uh, the headline, using a scent detecting dog to find sea turtle eggs. This one's a really cool one. Uh, so conservationists from Disney's Animals, Science and Environment, the Canine Academy Incorporated and Pepe Dogs in Water Research Group Incorporated have been using Dory, a terrier, to locate sea turtle eggs in their nests. The study comes as the latest in years of research in how to better protect the turtle nests and ensure maximum survival rates of hatchlings. The dog, who has proven better at egg location than its human peers, was actually a stray found on a, ho- a Florida highway and has undergone several months of training for the job. However, the legacy of Dory's salvation may in fact prove the salvation of many more stray dogs and incubating turtle nestings in the future. Did you say that it was Disney's Department of Animal Science? Animal Science and Environment, yeah. Wow, well,
0: interesting. Um, uh, So again, Hmm. from uh, the BBC, uh, this could be the Holy Grail to replenish palm oil research, uh, has said, a Scottish research team believed they may have uh, produced the Holy Grail alternative to palm oil, which I know uh, many of us would probably really want to see take its place but yeah. are probably a little bit hesitant, thinking, okay, but what's the what's the catch? None of these mm. things seem to come guilt-free or uh, anything like that. They estimated yeah. that almost half of all the food and cosmetic products in, on supermarket shelves contain palm oil to some degree. However, food experts at Queen Margaret University in Edinburgh say their new 100% plant-based ingredient, like to point out, palm oil is 100% plant-based. <laughs> so doesn't really say much already, but anyway, uh, is 70% better for the environment. So that's already a a sign um, of of good things. And with 80% less saturated fat and 30% fewer calories, they're also hailing Palm Alternative as a significant healthy option. The new Palm Alternative product is described as having a mayonnaise-like consistency. Uh, Its palm and uh, it's palm and coconut free, and it has no added flavoring, sugars, sweeteners, or preservatives or coloring. It's made by from a byproduct from the uh, linseed industry uh, plus natural fiber and rapeseed oil. So interesting
1: as to where this has come from and
0: uh, what mm. it may mean.
1: Yeah. Uh, and again, from fizz.org, corals Storm Back After Seaweed Project. This is really cool. Uh, Hmm. So citizen scientists volunteering to weed the coral reefs off of um, magnetic island by removing macroalgae have had their efforts repaid. Coral regrowth post cleanup has rocketed up to a whopping 600%. The project has been ongoing since 2018 at two sites and coral in the same region, which wasn't cleaned, had no coral cover change uh, during this time. So not only was coral regrowth boosted, but also coral diversity at the two sites that were cleaned was also increased. Wow, 600%. That's... 600%. <laughs>
0: That's almost hard to believe in, like, mm. in, in what you'd end up seeing. Um, so I've got probe after dozens of dead fish found in the River Spey. An inquiry has begun into the deaths of dozens of salmon and trout in one of Scotland's most famous fishing rivers. Uh, it's believed that more than 50 adult fish have been found dead over almost an 18-mile, 29-kilometer stretch uh, of the space since Saturday, the 9th of September. The Fisheries Board said pollution could potentially have killed the fish. Uh, no duh. Yeah. <laughs> Especially in rivers in the UK at the moment. Um, yeah. The Scottish Environment Agent, uh, Scottish Environment Protection Agency said it had found no evidence for recent pollution but was monitoring the situation. Samples have been taken from the water and the dead fish along the river between Grand Town on Spey and the highlands of Knockando in Murray. So the Scottish government's fish health uh, inspectorate said that the samples would be analysed in due course uh, and that Spey's fishery board uh, member Roger Knight said that the numbers of death have caused some alarm. He said if it was just the odd fish, uh, we'd be thinking perhaps it might not be a thing, but we suspect in excess of 50 dead fish uh, so far that we found uh, and there could be more than that so yeah look out for what that might be a sign of
1: yeah um live science reports on asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs allowed flowers to thrive in a post-apocalyptic world uh so flower plants were left mostly untouched by the kpg asteroid that caused the cretaceous paleogene mass extinction event it turns out that having uh, three quarters of the world's species eliminated allows plants to thrive, and the angiosperms, which are the, the flowering plants, uh, took full advantage of this, adapting to the end of days landscape with such efficiency, in fact, that in the time between then and now, almost all life on Earth has evolved to be ecologically dependent on their flowers. Hmm.
0: Yeah, they mm. are Yeah, the basis for a lot of food chain.
1: I, I tried to think of something... Uh, yeah, and no, in some way, shape or form, it's all connected back to the flowers. <laughs> all comes back. Um, so my final
0: one uh, comes from uh, r- n z, dot dot which is a New Zealand news agency. Uh, mm-hmm. And guess what? It's another conservation success for another island living species uh, being reintroduced into areas where it could be. But this is not the enigmatic parrot it's my other love when it comes to um new zealand and its wildlife it's the wetter oh um, yeah this is not the wellington tree wetter the one that i've yes Aaron failed to breed i know yeah i was about to uh, say <laughs> this is the much rarer giant wetter or wetapunga, um and a real homecoming for the wetapunga uh that predated the dinosaurs returning to a new zealand island so the gigantic insects have been absent from New Zealand forests for almost 200 years now. It's a really shockingly long time for these, uh, these insects to have disappeared. Yeah. But they are making a comeback in the Bay of Islands. Uh, as you could probably guess, the Bay of Islands is full of lots of little islands, which are much easier to predator-proof uh, than it is mainland New Zealand, especially for something gigantic for an insect, but still relatively small. So, the wetapunga is the largest of the 11 species of wetter and one of the largest insects. In fact, I think it takes the title for the heaviest insect in the world. But by 1840, uh, they'd all been wiped out by introduced predators, clinging to survival only um, on Little, Bar- Little Barrier Island in the Hauraki Gulf. Um, but since 2012, Auckland Zoo has been breeding wetapunga, collecting them uh, with the aim of reintroducing these ancient creatures. Uh, back to predator-free island reserves, and last Wednesday, Wednesday, over 300 juvenile wetapunga were released into two islands in the Bay of Islands, where the community conservation group uh, Project Island Song has been working for almost 20 years to restore native flora and fauna to these areas. So a really good success story. Um, and I, I got to admit, when I went to Auckland Zoo, I was lucky enough to see uh, the wetters that they have in their nocturnal house. <laughs> it, i must have looked like the weirdest person uh you could have told that i was a, an invert nerd because everyone else is streaming past to go and look at everything else i'm huddled down by the wetapunga exhibit really sort of trying to get as many good pictures of them as possible and going oh my god look at them they're so beautiful so yeah
1: And from BBC, uh, rewilding leads to bumper year for rare Kent moth. So in uh, in 1995, it was discovered that the black-veined moth, indigenous to East Kent, was teetering on the very edge of extinction. But Natural England brought together conservationists and farmers to work on turning the species' fate around. Since then, the species has enjoyed an increase, and the latest surveys carried out this summer have revealed the population reached a new peak of 255 individual moths. The farmers involved were given one-to-one guidance on nature restoration and rewilding and are now enjoying the fruits of their labor. And I, I really have to quote this one it's from a farmer by the name of Robert Malam, who said, uh, and I quote, you come up here on a sunny summer's day and it's just alive with the sound of bees and all sorts of insects. It's just a humming noise. In your worst moments as a farmer to come and sit here or lean over the gate and listen to that and think to yourself, I've created that. And knowing that you're putting something back gives me the most immense pleasure. End quote. Uh, I just, I think wow, it's just wonderful. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Hmm. And uh, well, that'll, that'll wrap it up for uh, this week's Natural History Covered Newsreel. Guys, as always, if you have an article or a, a topic of news that you want us to cover, uh, send them on into to us and you might hear it covered either here in the newsreel or as part of our main topics. And I'm actually the one with the main topic today. So I'll uh, I'll dive right into that one. And my main news article uh, this week comes from Mongabay online. And the headline is Kellogg's latest to freeze Indonesian supplier over palm oil violations. So the popular cereal giant Kellogg's is the latest big brand to stop its purchases of palm oil from Astra Agro Lestari an Indonesian mega plantation their action has been motivated by the findings of an of a 2022 report published by Indonesian environmental ngo walhi um i think i've pronounced that right sorry if i haven't and uh, friends of the earth the report accuses aal and their subsidiaries of land grabbing, environmental degradation, and the criminal persecution of environmental and human rights defenders. Uh, The subsidiaries are listed as PT Mamung, uh, PT Agro Nusa Abadi, and PT Lestari Tani Taladan. And these companies claim more than 6,700 hectares of land uh, without having acquired the free prior and informed consent of local communities in Sulawesi. The companies are further accused of failure to properly dispose of waste and worsening flood risks, and opening up other areas to flooding through their forest clearing activities around water water catchment areas. So really, not good. Putting a lot of uh, undue risk in uh, in these areas. Uh, PT Agro Nusa Abadi is additionally being held responsible as a company for starting its plantation without a permit, which also highlights the doubts that any of these companies had uh, the entire body of permits necessary to go ahead in the first place. A spokesperson for AAL uh, has, of course, denied all allegations and claimed that the company and its subsidiaries are operating within the law. But Kellogg's is just the latest consumer brand in AAL's clientele to denounce them and put their relationship on hold. According to Mongabay, others preceding uh, Kellogg's include uh, PepsiCo, uh, Friesland Campina, Dannon, uh, Hershey's, Nestle. Don't have the greatest track record with anything, do they? Really, uh, Procter and Gamble, Mondelēz, Colgate sorry, Colgate Palmolive, and L'Oreal. Uh, and they aren't the only ones who are displeased, actually. Shareholders are making their feelings known, uh, with some actually voting against the company's board of directors uh, due to the unlawful activities going on. AAL are now being called on to try and make amends, primarily through forest restoration efforts, but they've declined and are instead conducting an internal investigation. Um, the investigation is, needless to say, a complete farce uh, that puts pressure Uh, To prove wrongdoing on as well as uh, provide legal proof of land ownership from local communities, who in most cases own their land through customary claims. The AAL is deliberately using grey areas and complex Indonesian land rights issues uh, to, to keep the burden of proof upon the people, rather than providing evidence that the company itself was not engaged in illegal and threatening practices. Unfortunately, it doesn't really hold much weight when consumer brands like Kellogg's suspend business with companies like AAL. From an outsider's perspective like my own, and this is me purely speculating, it's its not based on any fact that I've read, purely speculating, it does kind of look like this plantation business hasn't been monitored ef- uh, effectively, and the brands are dropping them due to the risk to their public image more than the actual activity itself. Uh, but I, like I say, I could be just being a bit cynical there. So I'm, I must be upfront and admit that. But whilst they've been suspending business with, with the company and its subsidiaries, they have reportedly not shown any interest in seeing documents from AAL and those subsidiary uh, companies that would serve as evidence that the company has behaved legally every step of the way. Certainly the senior forest and lands campaigner at friends of the earth, uh, and the apologies, if I butcher your name, uh, Warav Madan, seems to, uh, to think this too. Uh, he asks, and I quote, why aren't consumer brands asking to see this documentation? It's their responsibility to conduct this type of independent due diligence, especially when violations have been brought to their attention, end quote. Uh, as the Mongabay article says, sustainability claims from consumer goods brands are as good as empty platitudes if they don't follow through and hold their suppliers accountable. The article also references the EU's new regulation on deforestation, which demands that brands trading in the EU uh, must do their due diligence to prevent and avoid deforestation and human rights abuses in their supply chains. But I guess I've already somewhat alluded to, um, to, uh, to where I stand on this. It's a good move to suspend your dealings with AAL, uh, is it a meaningful one or is it just another example of brands greenwashing their public image with rhetoric rather than tangible action um and th- yeah that that's that's the article what 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 would you say to that Gareth? Well,
0: I mean, yeah, the cynical part of me would say that yeah, there's probably a certain amount of greenwashing going on here, although um realistically the this side of things probably doesn't come out as easy. For people to see so if you're doing it purely from a greenwashing side of things it's probably not as evident you know it's not like a an ad campaign that they've got going on saying we're not doing this now we're doing this so i'd like to think that there you know there's some actual change taking taking place um and i think in combination if if we can see um a new version of palm oil, like we just said, like I brought up in our news uh, bulletin, there, you know, it it might help to to do a greater amount of good than than uh, any other way of doing this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, so um, well, there we go. Should we head on from our news, probably on a
1: less depressing uh, note, and head into
0: our creature feature for this
1: week? Well, yeah. I mean, it's depressing, but at least there's something happening about it. Yeah. But yeah, let's get get out of here and get into Creature Features. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Creature Feature.
0: Okay, we're into our Creature Feature for this week, and we find ourselves this week back in prehistory. As you know, I'm quite keen on my prehistory, and we are in a familiar setting. For those of you who've been long-term listeners to the podcast, you will... No doubt, be aware of where we are after a a little period because we have covered this particular time period well, at least three times before now Mm -hmm. um, with three different creature features. I think most of them have been mine. So this week, we're on a floodplain. It's a semi-arid desert with primitive ferns and conifers sparsely dotted around. Ahead, you can see a bison-sized reptile now, this reptile looks between a uh, cross between a cow and a tortoise in some uh, respects. It's got scoots all the way down its body and a weird, almost beak-like face, but not quite. It's browsing on the plants. This particular animal is called a scutosaur. These lumbering plant eaters, covered in bumpy scales, look pretty much impervious to attack. However, the piece is shattered. As out of nowhere, a grizzly bear-sized saber-toothed creature launches out from cover and clamps down on the neck of the scootersaw, severing its throat before overpowering it and killing it fairly swiftly. This savage saber-toothed creature is in This week's creature feature. It's not a saber-toothed cat, as Aaron would have probably uh, been able to figure out relatively quickly. Um, it is yeah, well, not. It is not anything like that. In fact. This week's Creature Feature has actually been suggested to us by Lindsay Kinsella, uh, who was one of our um, interview guests. And in fact, last week's Creature Feature as well, we forgot to mention, or Aaron forgot to mention and I forgot to pick him up on it, um, was also suggested by another one of our interview guests, the Devon Wildlife Trust's Katie Wilkinson, who came on who suggested the Portuguese Man of War. So... Following in that same vein, we have got a creature feature suggested by one of our interview guests. And just keep in mind, if you want to suggest a creature feature to us uh, for for us to do in the future, there's two methods. You could be one of our guests on the podcast or far, far easier method. uh, Join our Patreon uh, at the animal ambassador level and you can suggest a creature for us to feature. Anyway, back to our uh, (laughs) back to our rather bloody scene from that rather Stuck in advert there. (laughs) Um, In Ostransivia, this species is the largest of the Gorgonopsids. Um, They ranged in size from three meters long to three and a half meters long with a skull that's roughly 60 centimeters in length. And the animal is characterized by a very robust broad skeleton and broad skull at the back with a long snout and very advanced dentition like modern day mammals. Now, I've skirted around quite a bit as to what uh, this creature is, but we'll 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 hone in on it in a minute. So hopefully, I'm building up this picture for you. It has large canine teeth, uh, the longest of which were 15 centimeters long. Aaron, how long were Smilodon's teeth? Out of interest,
1: uh, I'll have a look. Here. Off the top of my head, I can't remember.
0: Fair enough. Um, so <laughs> 15 centimeter long canines, which were probably used to shear. Uh, chunks of flesh from this poor scutosaur and many
1: other prey items that it would have come across. Sorry, Gareth, did you say 15 centimeters? 15 centimeters long. Okay, with um, the largest species of Smilodon, Smilodon populator, it would have been 28 centimeters. So you're talking 11 inches long. I had a feeling that uh, they would probably be a bit, a bit
0: longer than the Inos, Inos ones, but that's quite a bit longer. Nice. Um, so yeah, it would be using these teeth to, uh, to kill its prey with like most other members of the Gorgonopsians in had a particularly large jaw as well. So picture, if you will, almost dog-like jaws with huge canine teeth hanging out like a saber toothed cat. It has a mixture of primitive and modern features to it. The jaw could open uh, to a much larger angle than most modern day mammals and would have allowed it to deliver fatal bites to its prey. So what is a gorgonopsid exactly? Um, Because you're probably asking that at the moment. I've sort of skipped over it. Well, the gorgonopsids were a group of what are called stem mammals. Um, This is a group of mammal-like reptiles. It's probably a phrase you've heard before. However, that's not strictly accurate. So stem mammals is a better name to call them. They split off from the progenitor to what would be modern day mammals, uh, which hadn't evolved at this point. So this group, uh, the Gorgonopsids, uh, um, are a member of the therapsid family of stem mammals, which had some very, very bizarre um, members to it. But weirdly, these animals share traits with modern day mammals as well as reptiles. So you get a weird mix of the two. in Ostrancevia and other members of the Gorgonopsids, uh, is a really good example of how these features come together to provide superior editor abilities. Its front legs were splayed out slightly, like that of a reptile. We're not talking completely out to the side, but certainly noticeably out to the side. Whereas its back legs were held underneath its body, like modern-day mammals. Very odd in that sense. It also had Smilodon-like canine teeth. However, Smilodon would have really wished to have probably had the ability that this animal has. Because if a Smilodon broke its tooth, that's pretty much game over for that cat. It's probably going to die a very slow starvation. And because of that, they used their teeth very sparingly and made sure to use them precisely. No such problem for our lovely Gorgonopsids, because like reptiles, they could regrow teeth ad nauseum if one broke off. So far more precise with the kill and using their body to overpower the victim before delivering that killing bite. Uh, These guys would have been far more gung-ho in their attitude. And if they broke a tooth, well, it would just regrow uh, a new one within a couple of weeks. So they have that reptilian trait uh, going in their favor. Now, there is a bit of debate over the next thing that makes up a Gorgonopsid. Um, Just as to what you might be picturing, has it got fur or has it got scales? Well, there are many schools of thought, um, putting them on either side of the fur or no fur uh, fence. Personally, I like to think of them as, as being slightly furred, having more mammalian trait in that sense, but it doesn't really matter either way at the moment because we don't have any fossil evidence proving one way or the other. There is, however, a small bit of evidence that might provide more uh, leverage for the fur side of things, and that's a small coprolite, um, that was found to be from a gorgonoxid that appears to contain some fur. Now, whether this fur is from the animal grooming itself, like mammals do, like big cats do, like dogs do, all, all mammals use their, their mouth to help groom their fur, or whether it ate a small furry mammal-like reptile or other member of the uh, the same family, we simply don't know at the moment. So for for this particular moment, you can say, they were furred or unfurred personally i prefer prefer to think of them as furred what about you aaron
1: so i tend to lean towards them being furred how how much fur i'm not 100 percent convinced on but definitely furred to an extent
0: yeah no i i like to think of them as as being slightly fuzzy um yeah yeah slightly fuzzy is a
1: good way of putting it
0: yeah so we're, we're still talking at the point where fur is a new concept to a lot of animals as well but I, I think with the, the habitat that these guys lived in, it might have been advantageous. Uh, and certainly the Gorgonopsids rose to prominence um, uh, and beat out a lot of other uh, creatures to, to take the top spot in their ecosystems. Well, you now have a picture of what Gorgonopsid and what Inos Transcevia would have looked like, this three-and-a-half-meter-long super carnivore at this point. It's got slightly splayed-out legs at the front. They're quite long at the back he's also got equally long legs uh quite a short tail the tail's almost insignificant on these guys it's just sort of sticks out a little bit um in a bit of a nub it's not really used for anything sort of running along in a very similar gait to a bear or a very similar gait probably to something like smilodon as well um however they were were certainly an animal that because of their longer legs would have been able to move a lot quicker than most of the other creatures around at the time. So the Gorgonopsids, as a family, uh, rose to prominence in the mid-Permian era. It's the first time I've actually mentioned what particular time period we're in. So the Permian, we've been here a few times before uh, with Lystrosaurus. Um, we've also had Dimetrodon, as well as uh, the Trilobites and their story in this particular period and a few others I think we've looked at. So the Permian itself is a time of great change and eventually great dying. The time when these guys first appear in the middle Permian era, the climate is changing drastically from warmer, uh, wetter weather being replaced by far more dry, arid climates that will eventually lead to this slow dying and the great dying of uh, the world as it's being slowly poisoned by volcanic activity further to the north in Siberia. Uh, where the the Siberian traps are just spewing out lava and fumes that will eventually kill 90% of life on the planet. So really, really a bad time to be around. There's also, uh, because of this change in the climate, uh, a change in the dominant land predators at this point. Now, another group of therapsid stem mammals actually were at the top spot of the carnivore uh, carnivore tree. And, well, at this point, the gorgonopsids were quite small, the largest one not being much bigger than a fox. Still with that same body plan. of, But when the climate changed and that other group disappeared, this left an opening for the gorgonopsids, uh, who were much smaller and could get into a lot of these uh, smaller niches and then started to spec out into much, much larger, super predator-sized in Austransevia. This climate change as well also changed herbivore dominance in the ecosystem and allowed the scutosaurs to become as big as they were up to the size of rhinos uh, and bison. So huge tortoise cow looking things roaming across the countryside being eaten by these large super predator uh, Gorgonopsians. If we were to look Bore, uh in Austran- in Austransevia um, around this time, we would find it somewhere in and around Russia, specifically towards the end of the animal's existence as well. You'd also find it in Southern Africa. Uh, at the time, all of the land masses um, were part of a supercontinent, but this is still a considerable distance away from each other, uh, with Russia obviously Russia being roughly in the same sort of position latitude wise it is today and southern africa being in the same position that is uh latitude wise today as well so at that point towards the late permian era uh we see these guys taking over from the um the other gorgonopsians that would have been mm. uh, part of that habitat because there seems to be some sort of localized extinction in southern africa that meant that these uh russian inostransevia could move in and become the dominant predators. And it means that we find their skeletons in what's called the Karoo, which is a national park in Southern Africa that has a absolute wealth of Permian-era fossils found there in exquisite preservation as well. That's where the Lystrosauruses um, that we talked about, the ones that had died, just starved next to a creek bed. That's where yeah. they had um, had come from as well. So you would you would be looking around in Russia for these guys, somewhere around 259 to 251.9 million years ago. So as a species, they only really were around for a very short period, right towards the uh, the late Permian era. So the first known fossils of this Gorgonopsid were discovered in an area called the Northern Davina, which is a sort of a river delta, it actually stretches quite a way through Russia into what's known as the White Sea near, and prepare for me to butcher a Russian name now. Severodnitsk, Nansk. Yeah, I've I've butchered that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but this river river uh, plain is is where most of the original fossils of this specimen have come from and subsequently as well loads of different fossil material have come from various different sites around there leading to actually a confusion of the exact number of what are considered valid species in the country Uh, originally there were only three of them officially recognized inostrancevia alexandri inostrancevia latifrons and inostrancevia uralensis most recent research carried out in south africa Um, has discovered fairly well-preserved remains that were originally uh, um, given to uh, a different species of Gorgonopsid have now been identified as being attributed uh, its own genus now of Innostranscevia africana. It was a relatively successful animal. There's four subspecies, although it might still be debated between uh, which ones are which. uh, Innostranscevia latifrons was actually the largest at 3.5 metres, but the type specimen is Inostrancevia alexandri. And it's uh, named, or the genus is named in honor of Alexander Inostrancev, paleontologist who described the taxon. So you can obviously see um, where the name comes from. Yeah, We now get to that point where we know what's going to happen. We know that the great dying is going to destroy these guys. Uh, and gorgonopsids entirely as a, as a group of animals, including Inostrancevia, disappeared during the late, um, what's called the, Pinion, which is the, the era of the Permian, the last era of it during the Permian-Triassic extinction, uh, mainly due to the volcanic activities that were happening in the Siberian traps. Interestingly enough, Siberia, obviously Russia is a very, very expansive uh, area of land, but it's not mm. that far away from where the Siberian traps would have been. So these would have been some of the animals that would have witnessed the downfall of of things, they would they would have seen uh, the polluted skies and would have been some of the first to sort of realize, maybe not realize, but certainly see things disappear and and be left standing there. And it's probably a good reason why um, a lot of the or you know why we end up with them in Africa is a lot of animals were probably pushed out of this area of northern Russia um, and moved further south because the environment was becoming polluted uh, with um, the volcanic eruptions. So the resulting eruptions caused significant climactic disruption, as we know, and favorable to the survival of most species uh, in the area, uh, and their ecological niche basically disappeared. But we do know that um, we do know that out of the ashes of this disastrous event that modern day terrestrial ecosystems would start to form sauropsids as well as archosaurs and even a few therapsids would actually survive this event um, including the ancestors to our modern day mammals as well however some russian gorgonopsids have already uh, or had already disappeared a little time before this event um, having uh, consequently abandoned some of their niches to other large therosophalians. and that's an entirely different group um so even towards the end of the extinction, we are still seeing sort of reshuffling of uh, of the major players on Pangaea uh, at this particular point. After the extinction of uh, a lot of these different uh, species, just before the very end, uh, we see the extinction of their large African cousin um, known as Rubigens in Ostransivia, basically then moved into this ecosystem. And we see that it, for a limited time, it took that apex predator role within this place Uh, and it would have been some of the last animals to really be there they'd have preyed on dicynodonts as well as lystrosaurs who would actually live through this permian extinction uh, and would come to dominate afterwards it would be odd to think if you were to look at a scene in this particular time period seeing these small pig-like animals and this massive proud predatory looking creature standing there probably butchering them in their in their tens you know tens or hundreds uh making easy work (laughs) of them and you went which one is going to survive you probably wouldn't put your money on lystrosaurus but indeed it does it does come through the other side and leaves the gorgonopsid lying in the dust Um,
1: but sorry you gonna say no i was just laughing um it really isn't what you'd expect at all it's uh yeah it's a little bit it's a dark comedy really isn't it I think nature is the ultimate dark comedy.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, It would have preyed on these. We, we would see that, um, well, eventually, eventually, as the Permian-Triassic boundary approaches and that mass extinction happens, the sun sets on our saber-toothed giant from the Permian, uh, and we have to head back towards our own less volcanic free time of the modern day. But along the way, we've seen that saber teeth as a survival mechanism or as a weapon have come around a few different times. First off with these guys, the uh, the Gorgonopsids. I actually forgot to point out the where Gorgonopsid, the word, comes from. And, well, Aaron, I'm fairly certain you'll know where
1: Gorgonopsid comes from. I certainly know where the Gorgon part of it comes from. That's ancient Greek. That's, it is uh... indeed. That's what uh, Medusa became.
0: Yep. So it basically means uh, gorgon beast. It's uh, they're named in honor of the uh, the gorgon, uh, a creature from Greek myth. Were they
1: all snake headed women, or were gorgons
0: a little bit yes, different?
1: They so the gorgons were, I believe, if I remember right, they were free snake headed women. Medusa goes a bit further. So Medusa wasn't a gorgon to begin with. She was actually a priestess of Athena mm. and she was but she she quite fancied Poseidon and obviously it's another one of those ones where it. Athena
0: gets jealous and decides to curse someone
1: yeah like there Athena and Poseidon have always had a rivalry um and this priestess actually sleeps with Poseidon in Athena's temple uh in Athens which really enrages her so she turns her into a gorgon however there's a there's a bit of a twist cuz uh she makes sure that if if a man ever looks upon Medusa, he'll be turned to stone. That's where well, that whole story comes from. But I don't believe the other Gorgons could do that. Fair enough. Well,
0: the Gorgonopsids were obviously the first uh, animals to really speck into having saber teeth. We then see uh, the next sort of group of animals that you could consider to be um, saber toothed is a type of marsupial from South America. Uh, and I will at some point cover this absolutely bizarre yet gorgeous-looking creature called um, uh, which most people would look at it and probably see it just as being a saber-toothed cat. And then, of course, the Macarodonts take up the mantle um, further down the line. So we've seen saber-tooth, uh, saber-toothed creatures come back and again and again through history, and yeah. who knows in the future what animal will speck into having those. Uh, somewhere down the line maybe a saber-tooth sparrow or something that'd be interesting
1: it has been such a successful evolutionary uh kind Weapon. of uh, yeah uh, i believe in my smilodon smilodon creature feature i also mentioned that it's quite likely that we'll see it again yeah i mean if you want to
0: can uh, consider walruses in there i suppose yeah. technically they're they're in there as well they're not using yeah. them to kill they're using them to sort of walk along the Seabed and that, and, and find mm-hmm. food. But yeah, so there is the Gorgonopsids uh, and specifically Innostranscevia, which I hope uh, if Lindsay Kinsella is listening to this episode, I hope you're happy with that one, uh, Lindsay. It's been really interesting to look into that one. I wasn't 100% aware of Inos uh originally. In fact, to be honest, I struggled to originally pronounce it because it is a rather (laughs) odd sounding creature, but the Gorgonopsids are fascinating. And that whole time period, I can completely see why he uh, is obsessed with it in, in his books and why he likes it. It's, it's such a bizarre time filled with such bizarre creatures that it takes so much more effort to understand than say the, the Cretaceous period or the, you know, the Jurassic period, because We know so much more about that. And there's so much more popular fiction about them. It's out there and it's easier to imagine. This is a time where the most advanced flying thing in the air is an insect. You know, there is no bird song. There's no pterosaurs. There's, um, well, there's ferns and cycads, but flowering plants won't appear for millions of years yet. Broadleaf plants haven't even really come around as a major group. It's an alien planet. That will eventually be wiped clean by nature to reset and restart with what we consider far more modern things that will appear during the Mesozoic period. So, should we pull ourselves from the uh, volcanic scorched uh, lands of the Permian and head into our mailbag, which is far less volcanically scorched, I might add. Let's do it. Bing! You've got mail. Ooh, it's an email. Right. Well, we are into this week's emails um, and we'll start things off with last week's listener question uh, to settle the debate as to what is the best burden? Why? We all know the answer. It's kakapo. So thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. We'll move on from this bit now. No, uh, um, we did <laughs> put it out to everyone else uh, to see what they wanted. Aaron, did you actually I can't remember.
1: Did you answer or not? I did. Do you remember I had five species, but I settled That's on right. I settled on yep. Archaeopteryx in the end because it that is it. the most important bird, really. <laughs> right.
0: Well, I mean, yes, it is. Yeah, historically, I suppose. Yeah. So, uh, looking down the uh, the list of respondents that we've had, James Welch uh, has put. I'm quite partial to a hornbill, to which Stuart Beard has put. Do they taste good? I'm I'm hoping he's not uh, thinking of trying to eat a hornbill. <laughs> Uh, Leah Dorr has put, uh, there's just too many options. How could you possibly pick the best? Well, I mean, the answer is Kakapo. Just plain and simple, really. (laughs) Catherine Ames has put, uh, I can't. My two uh, companions are completely different species, uh, genus, family and order, uh, and a few feet away from me. I'm assuming she's got um, a couple of birds staring at her by the sounds of it then. Uh, Stuart Beard has put, I would have to say the gannet. Britain's largest seabird and extraordinarily beautiful. Oh, I think they're quite cool. They hit the water at sixty miles an hour. You know, they're they're basically a flying torpedo uh, with feathers. Uh, my other half has put chicken tastes best when it's fried, grilled, roasted, boiled, battered, bread crumbed, and it's just the right size for you to eat.
1: You're going down a bit of a, a carnivorous bird hating kind of Samwise well, Gamgee
0: know- route. That was. <laughs>
1: Boil, them, mash them, boil stick them mash in a mass stick
0: them in a stew, exactly. Um, yeah, I did, I did, I did speak to her uh, after she wrote that, and, and I, I gotta admit, I agree with her. Um, chicken does taste very nice, it is a uh, versatile meat. They are also very nice birds as well. She did also say that they are fantastic. Uh, if we had enough space, we'd probably have chickens. Uh, and Danny, uh, Kevin has put my brain, don't make sexist jokes, don't make sexist jokes, yeah, don't make sexist jokes. <laughs> That's uh, which uh, I'm surprised we didn't have someone replying to that afterwards. But so from that, the only actual answers that we had is um, chicken and gannet. So I'm going to say Kakapo's won it, not because I'm biased or anything.
1: How, hang on, how, was Ka- how, how did Kakapo win this? Because or- I said
0: it more times than chicken or gannet
1: right <laughs> and if also it, it was i'm in of, charge I'm,
0: I'm I'm in charge here if i
1: knew it was a, ch- <laughs> a case of the number of times i've mentioned it, i would have just spammed it with archaeopteryx in the comment section <laughs> also
0: the only other suggestions were chicken and gannet so you know mm. it's i'm gonna have to just pull the rank on this one so as for uh, this week's question that we're going to ask you um based on some of the conservation success stories that we've, we've had uh, talked about. So the, the Wettupunga being released back onto uh, to islands and that um, if you could, if you, uh, sorry, if you could, what species of animal would you want to spend your life conserving um, and, and working with or raising awareness of uh, it's entirely up to you, Aaron, you've had some time to think about this.
1: Mm-hmm. I have this time. I'm gonna I'm gonna take a guess. I want this I actually is, want you to take a guess. A, I, I think mean, you'll get it wrong.
0: Well, I'm obviously gonna say tiger, which you're now gonna say no, that's wrong.
1: Very good guess, but no, it is wrong. I Are I it would say the amur
0: leopard or something like that. No,
1: no, it's, is it a cat? It, no. Oh. No. no. Go on. There, I, I would argue. Is, I f- I f- I would argue that tiger is actually a very good uh answer to this question if anyone does put tiger because you can use tigers as an umbrella species for everything in its habitat you you protect the tiger and you protect everyone else that lives lives in that area with it so that's a very good answer but no my answer is is actually polar bears ah yeah. i because polar bear your you, the way i interpret the question the question was that there's only one species that i can pick Um, yeah otherwise what you'd prefer otherwise i would have gone for a habitat or i would have got or i would have picked a couple of different um species at each hole um however as it was one species i was going to go with the one that i particularly like and that's that's polar bears which i will do a creature feature on at some point but i just figure that you can use a polar bear you can use any kind of polar animal arctic or antarctic species uh as an umbrella species for for the the entire planet really because we really need to get on top of this this uh the the global warming um and the climate change and one of the best ways you can do it is uh really really u- utilize polar bears as uh, almost the way that i was saying about tigers you protect the polar bear And to do that, you're going to have to protect that environment. And so everything in that environment will thrive. And because it's the polar ice caps um, being protected, that's a lot of knock-on effect and a lot of work around the rest of the globe that has to go on to protect. You have to do work all over the world to protect that polar bear in the Arctic. So I think that's probably the best one to go for, really. I I I think that's probably yeah. the best answer that anyone could give. I reckon, not being biased, but no, no, that's not bad actually. I mean, you can't get much more
0: enigmatic polar animal than uh, polar bear. The only other one would be penguin. Mm. Um, so yeah, and I think to be able to to keep one of the most fragile habitats there, that's definitely quite true. Personally, if you keep that
1: place safe, you keep you 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 take a huge Uh, leap forwards in protecting the rest of the world
0: yeah personally i'd like to go with i mean my obvious ones would be weta or kakapo but to be less obvious on these i've picked another bird that um, kind of falls into the same thing because where it lives is Mm -hmm. an island that is threatened by sea rise and that's the kagu Have you ever heard of a cuckoo cuckoo era? I
1: would love to pretend that I have, but no. I've got no idea what a cuckoo is. Perhaps this should be a creature feature itself.
0: I I will definitely have them as a creature feature at some point because they are absolutely uh, awesome little birds. They're about the same size as a chicken. um, Sort of bluey-gray in color. If you imagine... uh, It's probably to best description. I think their closest relatives are rails. So things like... Hoots and moorhens are, are somewhat closely related in a distant mm-hmm. way. Uh, but they live on land. They're not so much of a water, but they live in the forest. And they've got this big crest of feathers that they can puff up on the top of their head. They've got a lovely little pointy red beak and lovely red legs. And when they display, they droop their wings down onto the ground a bit like a cape and sort of parade around on a, on a lek. So they're from New Caledonia, uh, same place that you'd find crested geckos and Lycianus geckos. So it's an odd island already. So it's an island habitat, which I think links nicely with what you were saying about protecting polar habitats, because Mm -hmm. as a direct knock on effect, global warming will raise temperatures in the sea, killing off a lot of uh, corals around a lot of these islands. It'll also raise the sea level and make a lot of these islands... Uh, less inhabitable for for species like that so yeah that that would be what i'd like to because i'd I'd love to go to new caledonia um and see cagoos and, and things like that
1: that would be really cool
0: hmm. well if you dear listener uh want to let us know what species you'd like to protect and uh, would be your ideal species to be working with you can do that on our Facebook page uh, where that will be going up we'll also have it on our Instagram um, and hopefully on our Twitter as well if I remember to put it up there this time this week um <laughs> but yes you can also get in contact with us as well through our email address which is the nat history covered at gmail.com and I believe Aaron has got our email for this week
1: yes yeah, so our email this week it, again because we're catching up with things uh, it comes to us from Jen Greenhall who is one of our patreon supporters so thank you very much your continued support there jen Uh, and she asks hello you lovely lot i'm re-watching prehistoric planet and i have a question it may be a silly question but here goes uh what factors have been used to determine all or any of the different species of long-necked dinosaurs there seems to be so many types but they all look the same uh also it's just occurred to me that whenever there is an egg eaten it's always unfertilized white uh, it's always unfertilized, white and yolk. Just a thought. Perhaps I need to go back to work. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> not sure what to say on the last bit, but um, for those of you, that I don't think it's know,
0: probably to to spare people from going. Oh my God, there's a baby dinosaur in it. <laughs> um,
1: oh, she me oh, she means in the in the I because it's in a different paragraph. I thought that was. I thought she was making an observation on the eggs that she was eating. But yeah, no, now that I reread that, she's talking about the eggs in the, why uh, is there no baby bird in the eggs? In the egg? Prehistoric Planet. So for those of you that don't know, I mean, you all should know, cause it's a fantastic series of document, uh, documentary series. Uh, prehistoric planet is uh, narrated by da- Sir David Attenborough, who is a God among men anyway. Um, and uh, it's all about the, the kind of the, the closing chapter of the Cretaceous, uh, world um and it's really really good uh so i'm glad that it's getting a rewatch there it's really cool uh but to answer your question um i'm gonna take a crack at it because it's something that i'm interested in uh but i also stand to learn a bit from uh if gareth can fill in any gaps so yeah it's actually not a silly question at all it's a really great question uh it means that we can dive into this topic a little bit it because it is confusing um so Firstly, Jen is quite right. There are a lot of sau- uh, sauropod species, somewhere in the region of about 300 uh, individual species are known to science, I believe. There could well be more to come. And let's also not forget how fluid dinosaur taxonomy can be. Uh, if you know the story of Brontosaurus, then you have a feel for what I'm talking about, really. Um, now, those 300 or so individual species are bound to each other by common identifying traits. So all sauropods are herbivorous and armed with vegetation, masticating, spatula shaped dentition. Um, They're all proportionately long necked, although not all species were long necked to the, to like kind of a comparable degree to each other. Some to our eyes, some wouldn't really seem all that long necked at all. If you were, also looking at a diplodocus at the same time. Uh, and they were quadrupedal. Uh, and whilst their hind legs were typically thick, uh with uh, five toes, uh, their forelimbs were actually quite different. They were slender uh by comparison and ended in strong hands. But they were also a very diverse clade. Uh and so this uh despite these these um kind of common traits they um they can also be broken down into several subgroups. Uh, so you've got uh, Setiosauridae, Rachiosauridae, diplodicate Diplodocidae, Diplod- <laughs> and Titanosauridae, just to name a few. So how can we, t- t- to get to the actual crux of this question, how can we tell them apart? Because uh, told you how, how we can tell that they are sauropods i suppose firstly we have to acknowledge that we are just looking at fossilized bones we don't have any soft tissues uh, to the degree that would fill in the features that would be more noticeable at a glance so things like color um uh scale orientation or shape or um or, or even the presence of feathers or air sacs or, or anything like that uh so these features that would be really noticeable if you saw the animal in the flesh they're just not there um certainly not in the quantity that we would need to be able to make such an easy uh identification so observing the bones for the proportionally short amount of time that we do when we're either viewing them online or in books or at the museum it it is really not um an easy feat to be able to tell the difference but If you were able to have access to more resources, including time itself, uh, in order to observe on a closer, more intimate scale, you'd notice skeletal differences that separate the subgroups from one another. So the key here is actually in the skull and the vertebrae of these animals in particular. I suppose due to the evidence stored for for study, those those in the upper tail region um, seem to be the... uh, the ones that are most widely used for identifying different sauropods from each other
0: uh, it's mostly but, because there's a preservation bias the hips and everything are a lot harder to destroy yeah. than uh, skulls in in them
1: they're much more prevalent in the fossil record that's that's for sure um and as as discussed sauropods one of the traits of sauropods is that the back end is quite Quite hefty and durable, and the front end is they have junk slenderous. in the
0: trunk, I believe mm. is
1: the correct term. Indeed, they do. So, yeah, Gareth, do you have anything to add to this, or have I pretty much covered it? Well, the I mean, the easiest way to just sort of define a lot
0: of these groups is yeah, so diplodocids, um, are easy told apart from other dinosaurs in that they have a long tail and a long neck, generally quite thin. Um, and uh, and quite, um, quite long, quite thin, uh, and they use their head and their tail as sort of a counterbalance weight to each other. Yeah, the platyceps would have would have basically been standing in a field of ferns or low lying vegetation and just sweep their neck from one side to the other, slowly hoovering up food as they mm. walk walk forward. Their head is balanced by their their tail, um, which counterbalances. Camarosaurs, um, they're sort of very similar to Cetiosaurs as well in that they were quite a chunky body, quite a short short neck comparatively, and a little bit like um, modern giraffes in height, actually. Uh, So eating mid-sized sort of uh, plants Mm -hmm. and then taller than them at the same sort of uh, places with the Brachiosaurids, which would have been long-necked and almost the sort of a 90-degree angle of their body into a a nice tall neck uh, that would have reached the tallest of trees. And then the largest uh, of the sauropods, and generally one of the most successful groups going into the late Cretaceous, because for a long time it was thought that all the sauropods had died out before the Cretaceous period uh, had started. And that's because scientists only really studied North American and European dinosaurs for the longest time. As we started to look into South America, we realized that uh, all of a sudden, Hang on, they didn't die out um, in the Cretaceous period. They actually hung around for, well, right until the end. And Some mm-hmm. of the largest ones, which you do see in um, prehistoric Planet, Planet. Is, is Almasaurus, which is a giant titanosaur mm-hmm. from mm-hmm. North America. Uh, so the titanosaurs, um, which like um, Patagotitan, which I went to London to go and see, they're defined by having huge bodies, Long necks, long tails. Um, and the biggest thing is they're actually missing fingers. Uh, they've, evolved, they weirdly evolved a way to basically be walking around on their knuckles. The rest of the, uh, the digits, the rest of the phalanges have gone um, and they walk around just on those. So there would have been no nails on their front feet, um, would have looked a bit like an elephant's foot without its, uh, its nails. Yet their back feet, they've got huge claws uh, on them as well so they're the the sort of body plan body shapes the general idea of a sauropod is you get to a certain size and nothing can touch you you mm. can just you can tank any hit from any carnivore cuz they're all much smaller than you and unless they're hunting in packs you you're pretty fine um so yeah that's that's the easiest sort of body plan way to look at them all uh, really but there's so much we don't know about sauropods there's a There was that recent study a while back saying that they may have had a tortoise-like beak that encased yeah. their teeth as well. Um, as you were saying about feathers, there is uh, no direct evidence for feathers on sauropods, but there is some thought that because they evolved from the same group of dinosaurs that the theropods came from as well. And we know that their previous ancestors to those also likely had feather-like structures, there's a chance that some of these larger sauropods may have had some sort of ornamentation. They wouldn't have needed them for keeping warm because their bodies were so large, but um, they would have certainly possibly used them for things like that as for air sacs um, and their, their pneumatic bones. That is how they were able to get so big because they were full of so much air. Uh, and I love the dread. I think it's Dreadnoughtus in the first series of that. I think it uses it's Dreadnoughtus, yeah. that In the same sort of way that a sage grouse does. So it's a little bit of inference, but I think to a certain extent with a lot of paleo media, um, you've got to have a little bit of, well, this could have been a thing. And there's no reason to say why it wouldn't. Um, so, yeah. I, I and personally just go and rewatch
1: those series anyway; they're quite good. I'm going back through season two at the moment, so I I, I was going to go, say, I was gonna do the same. Yeah, I have to say, I think sauropods is uh, one clade that we could do with covering a few more species on next year, maybe.
0: I definitely, I think I've got a one or two more on there. Um, I can't remember if I. If, did I have Brachiosaurus? Maybe. maybe I don't know. I, can,
1: I can't but, remember.
0: Yeah, we will have to throw a few more sauropods into the mix. We did have to um, limit ourselves on uh, species of sauropod this year for the simple reason that we, when it comes to drawing the pictures, uh, Drew is obviously working behind the scenes to make the, the artwork. And for the end of year picture of all of the class of 2023 animals and plants, we uh, didn't want it being taken up by just a dreadnoughtus and a blue whale.
1: I was going to say I kicked <laughs> off the year with a with a uh, with a blue whale, and you very quickly followed up with Dreadnoughtus. So uh,
0: yeah, so we went big. We went big. Poor, poor
1: the Drew had to work out how to fit <laughs> these two behemoths into, into the roster for, for, uh, picture.
0: So I think yeah. Then uh, beginning of next year, then we'll have Argentinosaurus, uh, Brachiosaurus. Uh, you know, um, it would just Bert, be a load of cranium
1: heads coming over the. Yeah, just be loads uh, of heads
0: coming in from the side. Yeah, why not? <laughs> So that was a fantastic email there. Um, Hang on, If you want to get in contact uh, with us, like I say, you can do so through our email address, thenathistorycovered at gmail.com. And now comes uh, the time in the show that I get to talk about the many ways that you can help us out. Um, The first is uh, what these wonderful folks have done uh, is by joining our Patreon and supporting us uh, through our Patreon page. Um, They're helping make the podcast better and expanding the things that we do. So a big thank you to the following people, Fogtober, Jennifer Greenhall, Connie P, Chelsea McKee, and Jen Greenhall. They've all helped out um, on our fantastic Patreon page. So a big thank you to all of them at the various different tiers that they've joined in, but money isn't everything. And you can help us out in the simplest ways by liking, subscribing, leaving us a review on whatever podcasting service you are listening to us on. Uh, tell a friend, tell an enemy, ten, tell a uh, dying species at the end of the Permian. Um, but both of these ways are really good at helping the podcast out to grow. And ever since we've asked uh, you guys to do that, um, it has really helped take us off. Uh, and a big thank you from myself and Aaron in helping to grow the show. Uh, that we know we that we want to make better and we know that you guys probably want us to make it better as well. But a uh, big thank you from both of us.
1: Yeah, a huge thank you. Um It really does make a massive difference. Mm. And that pretty much brings us
0: to the end of the show. So, Aaron, big thank you for coming along. Uh, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you, everybody, right. for listening again.
0: We'll, we'll leave you in your existential quandary about vinegar and... uh <laughs> whether it exists or doesn't, or whether you exist or you don't. Uh, And a big thank you to you at home for coming along and uh, listening as well. And we will see you next time here in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye. Cheerio. So, Aaron. Yes. You're a gorgonopsid standing at the end of the world as it slowly is choked off around you. I am. Was it worth it?
1: Well, I've just found out that chip shop vinegar isn't a real thing.
0: Well, I mean, it's probably not too bad because chip shops won't be invented for another two hundred and fifty million years.
1: <laughs> I feel like Nero, you know, the the Roman emperor fiddled, Nero, who just fiddled fiddle while Rome burned. Yeah. That's what I'm doing. Sat there playing yeah. dizzy do for a podcast that doesn't exist yet, whilst the whole world around me burns. <laughs> <laughs>